Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Mark Gober is the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking, released in 2018, which was awarded the Independent Publisher Book Awards Best Science Book of 2019. He is also the author of An End to Upside-Down Living, released in 2020, and host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind? Additionally, he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Mark was a partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, and he previously worked in investment banking in New York. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University, where he was elected a captain of Princeton's tennis team. In this enlightening conversation, Mark discusses some of the scientific research that strongly supports the idea that consciousness is fundamental over matter, as well as his own awakening and spiritual practice. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. I came across your book, End to Upside Down Thinking, uh, released in 2018, during one of my own personal existential crisis, if you will, um, where I also experienced sort of metaphysical experiences. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for writing this book. It helped me so much. It helped me to piece everything together, especially all the science. So I just want to thank you for that. I'm so glad to hear that. That's one of the reasons I wrote it, because I knew many people have had experiences and there's science to back it up. Yes. And we need to know that information because time and time again, I hear, well, there's really not any science. And it's the answer is the opposite. There's lots of <laughs> right. science. Right. So, so your book actually has done exceptionally well. It was very well received. You have many endorsements, uh, Goldie Hawn, Eben Alexander, Dean Radin, just to name a few. So that's quite an achievement. Now, I'm fascinated with how you came across the idea about consciousness seeming to be more fundamental than matter. Mm -hmm. And if I can ask also, if you want to go back to the beginning, what was your perception of life at that time? Well, we, it sounds like, have had somewhat similar journeys, but also somewhat different journeys in that we, um, we had shifts in our perception. And for me, it, it began in a really intellectual way where I was learning about information. So I wasn't having direct energetic experiences when I started. And uh, my background is in business. Um, I went to Princeton. Then like a lot of people there, I went into business. I worked in investment banking in New York and then joined a, uh, a technology strategy firm based in Silicon Valley, where I spent 10 years and became a partner. It's a very traditional background. I wasn't thinking about metaphysics, um, although in the back of my mind, maybe I was in an indirect way, which was that I thought life was meaningless. I thought everything was random. And when you have a big bang that, that allows for lots of random uh, pieces of matter to combine with each other um, through what people would call chemical reactions, you have lots of chemical reactions in a big universe, and eventually you end up with a biological organism um, that develops a brain that be, that's conscious. And when the body dies, this conscious body dies, then it's over. There's no meaning. Uh, there's no capacity to think or experience life. And so what is the real meaning of life at that point once you're dead? And so I would kind of think about this in the back of my mind. We're in a random universe. It's all meaningless. And yet I'm spending all this energy trying to accomplish and achieve. Does it matter in the end? 
And by the, the 2016 timeframe, um, I would say it was a combination of having this metaphysical existential stuff in the back of my mind, which I wasn't talking about, but it was just kind of there with some life experiences that were not ideal, like some, some business deals that didn't go my way, some personal stuff that didn't go the way I wanted. So things in my material life were not going great. And then there was this metaphysical angst in the background. And I was just not in, not in a good situation because I, I was feeling very lost and living in a meaningless universe. What do you even do at that point? So I wasn't, I wasn't looking for something new. I was just thinking, well, I, I just, I have to accept the way life is and it's not going to matter in the end anyway, because we're all going to be dead and there's no memories at that point. And I was just like, um, started to listen to podcasts because if, if a friend had sent podcasts and they were starting to get bigger around that time frame in 2016, mostly health and business and came across a health podcast that was talking about alternative health methods, but not overtly spiritually, just kind of, I mean, all, some of the episodes were kind of spiritual, but I wasn't looking at it that way. It was just interesting to hear about health from that perspective. And one day there was a woman that came on that talked about psychic abilities, that she actually employed psychic abilities and energetic abilities. Her name's Laura Powers. And at the end of the interview, she said, well, I have my own podcast where I've interviewed many people that have had these experiences too. And she was someone that came from a background that, that sounded somewhat quote unquote normal. She had a master's in political science and worked in higher education. So I remember just kind of thinking, oh, that's interesting. She doesn't sound like she's lying. Maybe she's crazy. I don't really know, but she sounds pretty normal. So I ended up turning on her podcast called Healing Powers just because I was in this mode of listening to podcasts, going through the motions in life and very much a zombie-like state. And it was August 2016 when I, I started listening to a bunch of these podcasts through into September, uh, driving to and from work from San Francisco, where I live, down to Silicon Valley, which there's tons of traffic, and that was a lot of my day. So I got some good podcast time in. And I, there was a, the accumulation of hearing various stories on that show of people's own experiences combined with some of the science. There was a little bit of that too. Um, I started to say, wait a second, something's going on here. At first, I didn't take it seriously. I was just kind of listening because it was interesting to hear something new. But I realized that people independently were describing a view of reality that completely contradicted what I thought life was and what life meant. So at a certain point within a few weeks, this hit me pretty hard. I said, wait a second. I have to look into this because what if I've been looking at life completely in, in the wrong way? And what if everyone around me is thinking about life in the wrong way, like just literally incor an incorrect view of reality. That was a big idea for me. And the more I researched and started to dig into the science, the more I realized that this, this idea of, a, of being just kind of like a biological machine in a universe that has no meaning, that was not correct. So I had to really take a step back. I was disoriented. It was a challenging period because I went from this place of, of just not being very happy with life even on the surface it looked like I had achieved a lot I wasn't I got to a point where I wasn't achieving in certain ways at that time and I had no meaning and now all of a sudden wait a second Mark you have to rethink your framework for life so that led me to research a lot and I spent about a year researching I never had a plan of writing a book that wasn't on my radar when I started this it was just out of curiosity that I was learning but I was doing a lot of research. I mean, basically all my free time when I wasn't working, I wanted to read books and learn more about the science. And it got to a point in the summer of 2017 where uh, after having discussed some of these topics with friends, like over dinner and just having conversations, and they were very interested, 
I was sort of overflowing with information in my mind and said, okay, I, I should put this on paper and summarize it for people because I've learned so much. And when I try to have conversations, I'm able to convey some of it, but it's only bits and pieces and I need to just put this down. And then I thought, well, you're Mark, you're working in business, you're moving up at the firm. I eventually became a partner, but at the time I wasn't. Uh, why would you write a book contradicting much of what mainstream scientific thinking says? And could you even do that? And I was just going through all the machinations in my mind of why I shouldn't do it. But that was actually a pretty quick period. And then it hit me, no, you should do this. So I took the July 4th weekend in 2017, which was a long weekend to just sit and write. And I basically did what I used to do in investment banking and in business where I would sit down and have to finish a project as if it were like this, this most urgent thing ever. And for whatever reason, I applied it to this. So I was writing for a few days straight ended up getting a big chunk of the initial manuscript done that weekend. And then all of a sudden I had a book which came out in 2018. And then I released a podcast where I interviewed many of the scientists. It's called Where Is My Mind? And it's on the same topic of consciousness and existence. And then um, decided to leave my job at the end of 2019 or gave notice and ended up writing a second book in 2020 called End Upside Down Living. So that's a long way of saying that now my focus is on looking at this question of existence, looking at the question of consciousness, our sense of experiencing life, and the idea that that sense of experiencing life, that awareness, isn't coming from our body, but rather our body and our brain, they act as kind of a processor, an antenna receiver almost, or, or like a filtering mechanism where the reality of consciousness is well beyond what we perceive with our eyes, but our brain actually limits and shows us a little sliver of that bigger reality. It's no small feat <laughs> what you're undertaking, <laughs> but you know, it's fascinating. I mean, you have a business background and you were not really familiar with any of those concepts before. I think it's an interesting contrast, an awakening, a modern yes. awakening is what yes. happened. Yeah. Was, and I didn't know that at the time. I'd never heard of right. awakening. And sure. it wasn't even until later in the journey that I understood that there was a spiritual path. And the second book is more about that spiritual path and kind of living from this perspective of expanded consciousness. At first, it was like learning new facts about reality. And I didn't know that any other people thought like this. Right. So if in the last few years, I, I've come to learn that there are communities of people that have known about this for a long time, and I'm a total newbie. So... <laughs> Uh, but it, but it, that my world was not like that at all. So when I would talk to people about these concepts, it was completely foreign. And and so, it's I think the awakening is ongoing. It, it's not there there. And I talk about this in my second book that there can be instances of significant jumps in our perception or changes in our perception. But it doesn't mean that there's an end to the process. So for me, I had this jolt in 2016, and it's been a constant progression since then. I think it's really infinite. It's never ending because we're, I mean, we're evolving souls, if you yes. will. What's fascinating to me too, I was going to make a comment later on because I wanted to talk, highlight a few points in your book. But since we're talking about it now, all the science, the more you dive into it, which we'll, we'll talk about more in more detail, eventually takes us to ancient wisdom because the ancient wisdom has already talked about this in different language, right? So I just find that interesting. But uh, so so the one thing that stands out for me was Dean Radin's experiment that you mentioned early on. Uh, I'll let you tell more of the detail, but basically it had a significant result 
the same as CERN did with the Higgs boson discovery. Mm-hmm. And yes. and they got an award and Dean Radin didn't for his, you know, similar statistically significant discovery. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Dr. Dean Radin is one of the preeminent scientists in this area, <clears throat> this area of extended consciousness, of consciousness beyond the brain. Sometimes they're called psi abilities, the ability for us to know or sense things before they happen, to perceive things that are far away, to actually alter physical reality by altering the state of the mind. These are things that are are extremely controversial in mainstream science. They're not accepted. Um, And Dr. Radin has has done research at Princeton University for the US government, which ran a psychic spying program. And now he's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences where I joined the board. So um, I've gotten to know Dean and he's a very, very smart, great person. Uh, But the study that you're referring to is uh, what he's looked at with regard to quantum physics. And there is this anomalous phenomenon that occurs that even the quantum physicists who aren't necessarily into the stuff that we're talking about, it's, it's not well understood. And it's the idea that when people put their mental attention to the experiment, which in this case is called a double slit experiment, when people are observing it, they get different results than when they're not observing it. So when they're not observing it, that what they see is that there's a wave-like pattern that emerges. And the wave-like pattern just means that um, there's, it's like a wave of, of probability in which a particle exists. It doesn't have a definite location. Whereas my table right now, I can see it's right here. And what these experiments are saying is that when you're not looking at the experiment, you see this, uh, the, the particle, something that's supposed to be solid, behaves like a wave which is a very strange thing. But then when they observe the experiment, it collapses into a particle. So it becomes almost like solid matter. I'm extrapolating here, solid matter when there's an observer. And there's a big question, what, what does it mean for the observer to get involved? Why does, why does it behave differently? Does it mean, is it because we're shining a light on it, like physically a light and the photons of light are affecting it? Or what some would say, who have an open mind in this area, would say, wait a second, maybe our consciousness is having an effect. Even though we can't see it or feel it or touch it, it is impacting the experiment in some way that we don't understand. And someone like Dr. Radin, who looks at these phenomena, is now taking it to the realm of quantum physics to say, look, I know that consciousness is is acting in strange ways in these other areas. Let's try to explain this idea in quantum physics that, that, that they don't really know. They know that something's going on. It's a wave sometimes. When you look at it, it's a particle. And he's saying, Let's, let's try to isolate consciousness and see if consciousness is impacting this. And what he found, and these are initial studies, and, and many people are looking for replications on it, but he's gotten highly statistically significant results, which suggest that consciousness, the act of observation, which is really the act of putting our mental intention and focus towards something, is having a steering effect on the physical world, meaning it's actually steering the direction of this experiment. Even though it's a, a tiny, tiny effect, like many of these effects, it's highly statistically significant. And the types of statistics that he gets, not only with this experiment, but also other ones that have been replicated many times over many decades with other experimenters too, um, they're very small, but highly statistically significant. And if you see them in other areas of science, this level of significance statistically, they're accepted facts. So I'll give an example from 
uh, Dr. Jessica Utz, who in 2016 was the president of the American Statistical Association. She's looked at these phenomena and she said, uh, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. I don't know <laughs> that a lot of people know that. That's hard to, to counter because I've always looked at this from the perspective of how can I try to shoot this down? And the evidence accumulates to the point where you could say, well, huh, well, maybe this experiment needs to be replicated more, or maybe there was a mistake here. And you try to do that a hundred different times. It's the, the analogy I use in the book is like a, a bundle of twigs. It's hard to break the bundle. Maybe you could break an individual twig, but when you put them together into one bundle, you're not going to break the whole thing. When you have credible people like the president of the American Statistical Association looking at this, saying that it's well-established. And that quote I gave was from 1995. Wow. Because she was looking at the statistics of, of some of the, the studies done by the U.S. government where they use essentially psychic spying. It's called remote viewing. And that was her conclusion back then. So we'll talk about remote viewing. I did uh, take a quote or a, a point. Dr. Utz said, um, the statistical evidence for psychic phenomena is much stronger than the evidence that aspirin prevents heart attacks. <laughs> That's something yeah. you quoted. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. I, most people just don't know that. So let's talk about remote viewing. For me, that was maybe one of the harder ones to accept this mm -hmm. idea that we can mentally access information that's far away in space and time, meaning I can sit here in California and with my mind, in theory, I can perceive with my mind's eye what's happening in Turkey right now right. or at some point in the past or future. That's, that's harder to wrap my head around than one of these experiments where there's a small statistical effect or something like that. This just seems completely out there. And it's not something I've directly experienced, you know, when I'm looking at this stuff. But like many psychic abilities, what I found is that the, the abilities are subtle and they can be enhanced through practice. And there's some people that are naturally better than others. So just like in basketball, you have LeBron James and you have any everyday person who can dribble a basketball. It's a spectrum of abilities mm -hmm. that can be improved, but there's a natural component also. And some of the, the superstars, the LeBron Jameses of psychic abilities were recruited and maybe still are recruited by the US government and intelligence agencies to be able to use this skill for national security purposes. And in my podcast, I interviewed one of the leaders of this program. It started in the 1970s, Project Stargate. His name is Russell Targ, a laser physicist who um, was working with the psychics himself. And this, is, this was a program that ran for about two decades, 25-ish million dollars spent on it. And these people were able to access information that was far away. And, and one of the, the best examples that I like to talk about is um, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter confirmed that this was done. There was a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle, and the radar systems at the time couldn't find it. So they employed the remote viewers to try to locate where this thing was, because apparently there were code books and important things that had crashed. And the remote viewers were able to find it. And this is a particularly remarkable case because in some of the studies, like, like the ones that were done at Princeton University, which I was shocked to learn about because I went to school there and I didn't know the lab existed, run by the former dean of engineering there for almost 30 years. They would run these studies on remote viewing where they would have a person go far away from the remote viewer. So let's say I'm sitting here in California. They would send someone off uh, miles and miles away, and I would have to try to 
with my mind's eye, see where they are. And also looking at it in different points in time where they were, where they could be in the future. Um, and then maybe draw it out, for example. In those cases, someone knew what the answer was. The experimenters knew because they were sending the person out. So in theory, there could be cheating if you wanted to be really skeptical, although I think they did it, they were forthright at Princeton. But this other example with the African jungle, no one knew where this downed bomber was. Right. Yeah. So that's, to, that's really indisputable and that a former US president has confirmed it was found that way. And then also in the book, I, I cite a number of declassified documents that were released. And one of the quotes in the document says, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. And they show the science panel that examined it. So when I look at all this and put it together, something is going on. I mean, you wouldn't spend that much time and that much money on something that wasn't useful. Now, did you say that before when you were researching it, you had a hard time accepting it as a plausibility? Uh, how are you now with this? Is it still? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do accept it. Oh, okay. um, it's not something that I have tried to explore as much myself. I haven't actually like Direct tried experience. doing that. Yeah, I mean, I've had some weird experiences for sure, but it's like, I don't practice remote viewing or telepathy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more interested in the spiritual journey and more of like the self-improvement aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And I look, I like the science because it points to what's the nature of reality. Yes. I, I would say that I, I accept these phenomena as, as real. It doesn't mean that every example, when every person claims they've done something, that that means that they're telling the truth or that it's real, but right. that in some cases it can work. And it's likely that, I mean, our government was working on this. I also interviewed for my podcast, Uri Geller, who's known for his alleged spoon bending abilities. But we also talked about his work for the U.S. government, where they put him in a, a shielded room and they had him remote view objects that were far away and he was able to do it. Mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Let's talk about mediums, mediumship. When I first learned about people's claims, I actually didn't have a super negative reaction to it. Some people I know personally would hear these things and, and literally turn the podcast off if they heard it. So I never had a reaction like that. My reaction was more of, it was like going over my head. I, I didn't appreciate what they were talking about as, as a reality and what it could mean, but I wasn't, I wasn't like pushing back on it. I, when I did the research, I was looking to see if it was real, but I never had one of those extremely negative reactions. So that was my my starting point, maybe, of, oh, I, I haven't heard about this. This doesn't make any sense. Could this be real? That if it were real, I would have to change my worldview. That was more the way I, I was thinking about it. Um, and mediumship is this the idea that one could communicate with the deceased. So the consciousness of a person that's died still exists under this idea of consciousness that I've been exploring. Uh, because the body is the, the vessel for consciousness and consciousness exists beyond us. So I, I think early on, I heard about the concept of mediumship. It was on the Healing Powers podcast and Laura Powers herself does mediumship and psychic stuff. So I, I was exposed to it early. And you're reminding me now, now of one of the, the episodes on her show that really kickstarted this process. I remember having a very visceral reaction to it. The interview was with a man named Paul Davids, who like me, was a Princeton psychology major. So I remember hearing that and thinking that was interesting. And he's a Hollywood producer. He produced the Transformers. And so he's been involved in some interesting stuff. And he's telling the story to Laura Powers in a very serious manner that one of his colleagues, who was an atheist before he died, basically said, look, I don't believe in life after death, but if something happens to me, then if something happens to me and there is life after death, I'm going to try to communicate with you. He said something to that effect. 
And then he died and Paul started to have very strange experiences that could be correlated with his deceased colleague, which included an ink blot on his paper that he was working on. He left the room and came back where he was home alone. And there was an ink blot that was strategically uh, blocking out certain letters on the page, which then could he was able to like correlate with a potential message. And he spent three years with a chemistry lab trying to decode what the chemical substance was on the paper. And he couldn't, there, there wasn't a normal explanation for it. And there were many other anomalies that he looked at. So he's telling this story. And I remember just not being able to move in my chair because I had heard a bunch of stuff for the last few weeks in the podcast episodes. And this, he was so serious the way he talked about it. He spent his own money to investigate this. And I, I could tell that, that something was going on um, that suggested a continuation of consciousness. And in that interview, he, he talked about mediums, that he worked with mediums, who I, one of them is, her name is Catherine Yunt, who I interviewed for my podcast as well, that she was able to communicate with him and bring in information that shocked him about his deceased colleague that she would have, have had no way of knowing. So I was like, I was primed pretty early on with information like that. So I was, I was open to it. I would say scientifically, the best evidence for mediumship, if we're looking at the, the statistics rather than just anecdotal cases, because there are some really strong anecdotal cases too, dating back to the 1800s, is at the Winbridge Research Center. Dr. Julie Beischel is looking at mediums um, under five levels of blinding meaning that the medium is on the phone with Dr. Beischel and Dr. Beischel is giving the name of a deceased person. And the medium over the phone just has to give information about that person without even knowing who that deceased person is related to. Basically, they control for all the things that you think a medium might do to cheat because they're not in the same room. The medium's not even talking to the person who has a deceased relative, for example. And in early peer-reviewed studies, they've found statistically significant results that the medium is able to get information about the deceased person that chance would not predict. Chance alone can't explain. There's some anomaly. There, there's a differential in the information that they get versus the information that they should get if it were just chance. That makes me think of super psi, the idea that you want to make sure the researcher or anybody involved in the experiment, that this psychic medium is not psychically getting the information as well, which I think is why Dr. Beischel uses the quintuple blind study structure. Well, you, you raise an important point, which is the, the challenge in, in knowing the source of the information. Anytime we're dealing with non-local, non-physical information, we don't know the source. Mm -hmm. And it can be difficult to isolate. Is it a deceased person or is it someone that that knows information about the deceased person and the information is being picked up psychically. So it is a challenge that scientists are trying to isolate the source of the information. And this also comes up with regard to young children who have memories of a previous life. Right. And the research is done at the University of Virginia for decades. They have mm -hmm. over 2,500 cases and, and the results in some cases are staggering where the child knows information that no one could have known. And as a little child, the details that are coming out are just insane. And then the question becomes, okay, they're getting information non-locally. Is it suggestive of reincarnation? Or is the child psychically tapping into some information that's not a past life, so to speak? And the conclusion of many of the researchers is that it likely is reincarnation. That's what I, I found. And that's that's where I end up, is that it's not a they're not picking they're not picking it up from someone else's mind psychically. They're actually tapping into some past life. 
Um, but once you get into this realm, there are the, the considerations start to change once you have a certain accepted set of beliefs. How about the uh, physical evidence in the children, birthmarks, uh, wounds, et cetera, that correlate with the past life that they're reporting? I, that's probably some of the strongest evidence that it's not just a psychic effect, that the children's physical body <laughs> correlates to what happened to the person in the past life. So in the book, I show a picture of of a girl whose leg is indented as if it had been tied up in ropes. And the past life she was speaking of was of a person who had died in that exact manner. Now that case is a little bit different because the mother, while she was pregnant, saw this person's dead body. So it might be what's called a maternal impression where mm -hmm. something about having witnessed it maybe had a physical impact on the body in her womb. Uh, but it's, uh, it's hard to say exactly what the effect is there. Uh, but there are many cases where there are gunshot wounds that correspond with uh, birthmarks and things like that, where gunshot wounds from a past life that correspond with birthmarks. When there's a medical validation, when the medical records validate what's happening to someone's body in this life, the most sensible explanation is that this is actually a reincarnation, that somehow the information from one life is being transferred into a new body, essentially, if we're vessels uh, and, and we're, we're inhabited by this consciousness. When the consciousness inhabits this body, something about the information that comes in is impacting the biology as well. It's not just the mind. And then the transplant studies also show that the mind may not be in the brain. Heart right. transplants, et cetera. Yes, organ transplants where the, the person that receives the organ has memories and sometimes develops uh, personality traits that are in alignment with the person who previously had the organ. So there's one example I reference in the book. There's a book called The Heart's Code by Paul Pearsall that goes through many of these examples that he saw, uh, but of a little girl who had a, a heart transplant and she started having horrible nightmares of being murdered. She saw a psychiatrist and it got to the point where they, they asked her to, to like draw out this murderer because they realized that she received the heart uh, from a little girl who had mur been murdered. And allegedly, they were able to match up what she came up with in her dreams, the, this murderer with the actual murderer. That gives me chills. <laughs> in that one case. But there are many other cases where people have personality changes. I mean, yeah. cases like that are extraordinary. And the skeptic who would hear something like that would say, well, that was one case. What if a doctor was colluding and someone was lying? So I never like to rest everything on one extraordinary anecdote, even though it could be true. But there, there are other cases like this, too. So it does raise questions about consciousness from a bigger perspective. Is Can the biological system, in, can it transfer consciousness? This is a completely different idea than consciousness just comes from the brain. It's like a computer. When you turn the brain off, there's no consciousness anymore. We're talking about something here that's well beyond that, that's expansive beyond our body, and that our biological system is somehow tapping into it and can have remnants of it. That's what this organ transplant research suggests that something is imprinted in the, the cellular biology that can be transferred. And that's just, these ideas would radically change science, would radically change medicine. And that's one of the reasons I felt so compelled to write about this, because we know we're behind in, in how little we know about science and medicine. There's so many diseases and illnesses that we haven't figured out yet. To me, the, the missing piece, the biggest missing piece is this understanding of consciousness, which we have to recontextualize. Just a quick point. It makes me think of, 
you know, what we would consider uh, mystical would be considered in, say, India, the science of consciousness. For people in India, it's just factual, the way they learn and, and understand consciousness. It's a science. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's the ultimate science in mm -hmm. many ways, because the, the framework of consciousness that I like to use comes from Dr. Bernardo Castro, a philosopher in this area, who says that all of reality is like a stream of water, and we are individual whirlpools within that stream. So we're all made of water, we're interconnected, but we have this sense of individuality, the appearance of individuality. And when the whirlpool stops being a whirlpool, the water dissolves into the broader stream. Consciousness, by analogy, doesn't die when the body dies, it simply transitions into a new state. So there's this idea that consciousness is everything, and, and therefore it is the ultimate science, because everything that we experience in the world is a manifestation within consciousness, rather than saying the world exists and we emerge within the world. It's a reversal in thinking. Dr. Kastrup is is very brilliant. I really I really like him, um, and that's a perfect analogy. That that made a lot of sense to me when I read about it, and it's just an easier way to to process the concept because, like you said, it's an upside down thinking, and we have to reverse everything we know and understand about our science of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's upside down thinking at the most fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there are aspects that we can still hold on to. Like we've learned a lot in chemistry and biology and physics that simply have to be put into a new context so that they can be understood differently. So the fundamental thinking is upside down, but it doesn't mean that we throw everything out. And that's on a personal level, it, it it's upside down thinking as well, because we have to recontextualize our own identity to mm -hmm. what, what does it mean to be human? If wait, if consciousness doesn't come from the brain, if consciousness doesn't come from the material world, consciousness is fundamental, then what am I? Am I a body or am I a consciousness that is temporarily inhabiting a body? And that shift in identity is it's wild because right now I'm sitting here with a consciousness that's always been here. It is the only thing that's always been here just based on my experience alone, there's always consciousness. And it's almost like it's been ignored until I had this awakening to acknowledge what is it that's having this experience at this very instant. Everyone listening can do this right now. There's a part of us having the experience that has, has been unchanging. As the world around us has changed, as our emotional state has changed, it's, this has always been there. And Dr. Uh, Rupert Spira gives an analogy of like a, an infinite movie screen where on the movie screen, you could be playing a movie and there would be different characters that appear on the screen. So different pixels are lighting up with different colors, but the screen is unchanged no matter what's happening in the movie. And that's sort of like the consciousness that we have. That's the stream that's always there. Different things appear in our life, different emotions come up, different thoughts come up, but the consciousness that is absorbing all of those things is ever present. So when we start tapping into that and say, start, wondering what is it what is this observer this subject of all experience life starts to look very different that's the only way i can put it i don't know if i can explain how it changes but it does because you realize that that consciousness is always there and maybe that's the source of reality consciousness itself and that's what eckhart tolle teaches with his spiritual insight and eventually the further you go, you realize there are no words. 
it's difficult to describe in words and we need to remove the language from the perception and just experience right so that that's where that goes <laughs> yes and i can i can say that now from personal experience because since i decided to leave my job one of the things that i've been doing for the last year is meditating a lot Good. which is the experience of going into the abstract uh, because that, what I've tried to do is to bring the abstract into tangible language and, mm -hmm. and try to, that's really what both of my books and all my work has been, is to take this really out there concept that we can't even grasp and try to make it understandable using language. But that naturally uh, is an approximation. It's not going to get us all the way there because language is, is not the real thing. Right. So if I talk about a cup, my description of the cup is not the cup. It's just my words that are a proxy for the actual thing. It's the same thing with consciousness. We can talk about it all we want. We can't even touch it. If we want to go really deep with it, and this is where a lot of the ancient wisdom starts to go, is, is going inward. And so for the last year, since doing two silent meditation retreats, one was six days and one was five days, those were really big for me. But I've been meditating for an average of around five hours a day for the last year. It's been a lot of meditating. For someone That's who couldn't incredible. meditate for 15 minutes before. Yeah. It's it's not easy. I uh, I still struggle. I, I break it up. I don't usually do it all at once, but, but it might be two hours here, one hour there. Right. And what's happened is the meditation retreats really kick-started the process because there's no choice and it's silent. There's no talking. All the electronics are turned off. And after a few days of that, I started to feel energy for the first wow. time, like really feel energy. And now that's what's been happening where the energy is so strong that meditation is just almost the act of letting this energy move, which it almost like it has to happen and if i don't let it happen then i won't feel good so the energy is is doing something and i don't say it as if it's an addiction it feels almost like being operated on and i know that sounds strange and would have sounded strange to me not too long ago but that's literally what's happening and the energy moves to different parts of my body it tends to be concentrated in like the head area for me in the throat area but i feel it, it moved into different parts of the body i feel sparks of electricity um, and this is part of what's known as a Kundalini process, which I write about in my second book. It's not, it's not novel what I'm experiencing. Many people throughout history ex have experienced this and today are experiencing. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to learn a lot about that process. And now I'm starting to experience a lot of the things that I've learned about. That's fascinating. It's really a transformation. The way you describe, it, it feels like you're being operated on. It's, it's transforming, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you, you put it that way, because when it, when I'm living it, the transformation is not as visible on a day to day basis. Right. But when I think back several years ago or even a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, I can look at where my life was and how I used to think about things, remembering that state of mind versus where I am today. And it really is a transformation. It's a radical departure from everything, from how I how I used to view the world. And it's like we talked about, it's ever evolving. So it doesn't, it's not done. And I don't think it ever ends. Right. I think back to myself as well. I was always open to all of these concepts, but uh, I needed evidence. And um, as I got older, I was almost becoming more and more skeptical to the point where I actually didn't believe in mediumship even a few years back. And, but I was having psychic readings and having my own experiences, mystical experiences, but I didn't experience the mediumship until I was having a mediumship reading my first one. And I said, you know, mentally to myself, 
my higher self, whomever, whatever. And I just said, you know, I need evidence because how do I know this person is not reading me psychically, et cetera, et cetera. And that was literally my thought. And in that moment, I actually experienced a mediumship connection. Hmm. And I thought, oh, so it is real. Because for me, my direct experience was what I needed. It's not proof or any, by any stretch, but uh, that was enough for me to be opened up because I was having all of these other experiences, things that you were experiencing as well. So having that on top of it, I thought, all right, then, fine, I'm paying attention. I'm open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you raise a, a, a broader point that I think is really important to emphasize, which is the importance of direct experience. Mm -hmm. And I found this in talking to people, especially people in my network who are very intellectually minded and they want to see the evidence even when they tend to see the evidence, it's not necessarily transformative to read about a statistically significant study or about some incredible case of mediumship or of remote viewing or something. It has an intellectual shift where people say, hmm, I have to think about this. And if they don't continue thinking about it, it's sort of like one of those things in the back of their mind and okay, scientists will figure it out. It, it takes a lot of, of intellectual study and practice for that route to have a transformational effect. And I know that from personal experience because I would have to, I would spend so many hours learning and, it, and the minute I would stop, I would kind of revert to my old way of thinking. And it wasn't until I would go back to researching that I would kind of re-remember, oh wait, I have to rethink this. And it took such a huge body of evidence where I got to the point that I couldn't counter all the evidence I had seen with my old worldview. And, and that was leading to a shift, but it was a gradual process. Whereas when someone has a direct personal experience, I found that it can be transformational. And the most extreme example might be uh, a near-death experience where a person's whole life changes immediately afterwards. So there are these two categories of awakenings where it's like the direct experience that catapults people, and then there's this intellectual experience, which seems to be a slower process and requires like personal commitment to it. Whereas a direct experience, that can just happen to you spontaneously sometimes. Yes. And then you're in like there's no going back once you 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 can't unexperience certain things in the same way that when i research i can't unlearn certain things that i learn near death experiences now there's where especially the veridical the medically verified experiences that's really where science and spirituality really starts to meet yes i'm glad you mentioned veridical experiences because that there are lots of explanations for near-death experiences that, that can't be explained by the brain. So people will come up with looking at the chemicals in the brain and saying, well, those actually don't correspond exactly with what happens to a person in a near-death experience. Uh, but the veridical case, I think, conclusively shows that these are not hallucinations. And the, the near-death experience is an instance where a person has some kind of physiological trauma to the body, for example, like cardiac arrest, blood stops from flowing to the brain, we know when this happens, the person's clinically dead. Okay, they shouldn't be capable of having major memories. And yet, in one study, Dr. Pim Van Lommel, this study was published in the Lancet Journal, he looked at cardiac arrest survivors and found that roughly 20% of them came back reporting a near-death experience. It should be 0%. So what's going on? Why are so many people coming back with an experience? And the experience is usually very positive, although sometimes there are distressing near-death experiences. But people talk about uh, being immersed in unconditional love. They leave their body. They sometimes see deceased loved ones or a mystical being of light and have communication. So very multidimensional experience sometimes. But it is this, this sense of, be, of being liberated from the body that people speak of. 
sometimes what happens when they're in that state of being out of their body is they observe things in the room or outside the room. And then when they're resuscitated, they talk about what happened. And in some of those cases, it's what they, what they say happened is validated by people who were not having a near-death experience, like by the doctor, by family members. So here you have a memory that's occurring at the time when the brain should not be capable of producing any consciousness, let alone a, a memory that's accurate. That's not a hallucination. So something very serious is happening. And there's a, a book called The Self Does Not Die, which chronicles over 100 of these veridical cases that have been well-documented. There should be zero of them. And you could imagine they're difficult to, to document because you need someone that's going to properly document it. And then you need the people, you just need so many things to happen for people that aren't looking to prove near-death experiences um, in order to document it properly. So I think that's very significant knowledge that, okay, something's happening outside the body. You have a, the body's essentially dead. The consciousness is, is more alive than ever. People talk about omnidirectional 360 degree vision occurring, even in blind people who can't see in their body, they're able to see during the near-death experience. In some cases, we have to look at what ha what's happening in this state because it might be telling us something about the broader stream of consciousness. What's happening when the brain gets out of the way, when we unlock the filter, another analogy I use is the brain is the blindfold. When we get the blindfold out of the way, we take the blindfold off, we can see the rest of the stream and the near-death experience could be a, a way of, of seeing that broader reality. So that leads me to the life review phenomenon, which for me has been one of the most transformative things I've learned about. Um, the life review is, is during the near-death experience, some people report reliving their whole life in a short amount of time. And not only do they see the events through their eyes as if they were happening now, even though they happened in the past, they view the events through the eyes of the people that they impacted during those experiences. And sometimes there are indirect effects by third parties as well that are felt. So I interviewed for my podcast, Danian Brinkley, who has had oh. four near, four mm -hmm. near-death experiences. He had a life review each time. Yeah. And he had to relive his combat days in Vietnam, where he told me he was vicious in combat. He had to relive the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes. You can tell from the way he talks about it that it's not, it was not a pleasant experience at all. And he also felt the pain of the child that would no longer have a father because he had killed the father. So he viscerally felt this interconnectivity. It's like somehow consciousness is liberated in this alternate state, and we can view reality through different lenses. Whereas when I'm in a body, I'm seeing it through the lens of Mark only. Something happens in this other state of consciousness where you can like switch lenses in different periods of time. So when he came back from his near-death experience, he became a hospice volunteer and transformed his life, became much less materialistic, like many people who go through this. So in his later near-death experiences, when he had life reviews, he not only, he had to start from the beginning every time is what he said. So he had to relive the bad stuff. But he also began to see what it was like to be the person dying in the hospice, looking into Danian's eyes, comforting him as his consciousness was transitioning. So he got to feel the, the, the effects. He talks about basically loving and unloving actions that we give towards people. That's what people, he and others report about the near-death experience, is that people are observing how they acted first and foremost. And the, the, they usually say that the little things in the life review the little things that we would call little things in life, quote unquote, are the big things in the life review, like how you treated a cashier in line. And if you mistreat the cashier, one woman said she felt how the cashier was in a worse mood and then didn't treat people as well later in the line who were coming through. Mm. So it's a my broader point is that 
we can learn things about the nature of reality by studying these phenomena. If we look at them as hallucinations or just some anomaly to throw off to the side and not think about, we won't learn as much. But if these are real phenomena, which I think they are, it's teaching us something about life and how we might approach life in our, on a daily in a daily manner. And what what I found in my research is that when people have these experiences, whether it's a near death experience or something else, the way they act in their life, their priorities and their values, they shift dramatically. That that again, there's a transformation that takes place, which is an after effect as well as other NDE after effects like a kundalini type of experience, psychic experiences, electrical sensitivity, um, even abilities uh, that the person never had before their near-death experience. They would have extraordinary you know, artistic ability or some kind of um, scientific understanding that they didn't have before, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those you know, are compelling examples of something happened. Right. Right. And uh, you're reminding me of uh, what Dr. Bruce Grayson says. He's from the University of Virginia, a psychiatrist. And to him, he looks at near-death experiences and, and sees the science of it, but he's looking at the transformation that he sees and knows that the way these people are transforming after a near-death experience is not like what happens in just some hallucination. They, they become a different person in many ways. And I'm thinking too about the clarity of recalling the near-death experience, similar to the clarity that shows up in terminal lucidity, which is another interesting phenomena. Not as many cases reported and not enough research has been done, but another fascinating aspect. Right. Yeah. And this is, these are instances in which a person who has su had some kind of issues with their cognition Mm -hmm. um, near the time of dying, suddenly snaps back into lucidity as if nothing happens. So the most striking cases are Alzheimer's cases where the person hasn't been able to remember things, has been pretty out of it for a long time. Shortly before dying, it's like nothing happened and they're completely lucid and then they, they die. So what is, what's happening near the time of death? It's almost like the veil thins. That's the way I think about it. The near-death experience is an extreme example, but the consciousness is almost whatever is blocking us from the broader stream becomes less capable of blocking near the time of death. Is there a particular study that convinced you more than the other ones of consciousness being fundamental or was it the culmination of all the studies put together? It was all of them put together. There was no single study that did it for me. Because it, like the, the analogy with the, the twig and the bundle, the bundle where I, I couldn't break the whole bundle, I could break individual right. twigs if I maybe tried. It, it's the accumulation. But the, as you're asking the question, one study did come up that, that maybe solidified it, that made me exhale a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it was one that came out in 2018 by Dr. Etzel Cardenia. He published a paper in American Psychologist, which is the official peer-reviewed Scholarly, scholarly journal of the American Psychological Association. This is as mainstream as it gets, and he was accumulating all the statistics on these phenomena. So telepathy, remote viewing, precognition, psychokinesis, which is mind impacting matter, and things like that, and they published the paper. So that, I mean, that was very validating. In spite of everything else that was out there, it was, it was a big one. And I haven't seen, I, I don't know what the counter is to all these things. It's, <laughs> 
in many cases, scientists haven't looked at it or they don't want to look at it. And even if they did look at it, the implications are so big that maybe it just takes time to work through the system. I think so. I agree with that. What did it for me, or at least what got me curious and stopped me in my tracks, you reference it in your book as well, but I heard it first for the first time from Dr. Eben Alexander. He referenced in his book, Living in a Mindful Universe, the three psychedelic studies where he found that all of them came to the same conclusion, essentially, that the more people had um, the psychedelic experience, the more vivid, the more lucid, the spiritual experience, the more the brain shut down. Mm-hmm. That was a new thing for me. And I was driving in my car, and I don't think I should have, because I almost stopped, <laughs> slammed on the brakes and looked around, and I thought, is anyone hearing this? Does anybody know about this? Why is this not, why has this not gone viral? Right. Well, it fits into a category of phenomena where you see a reduction in brain functioning that's associated with heightened or enriched consciousness. So the near-death experience is the most drastic example. Um, so Dr. Bruce Grayson from UVA, he said, we're left with this paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. It's completely opposite of what you would think. And the emerging psychedelic studies are the same thing. A reduction in brain functioning in certain areas is correlated with this enriched consciousness. We see it with savants like Dustin Hoffman in the movie Rain Man. Extraordinary mental, mathematical, musical abilities in some cases, and yet there are impairments in other functioning and impairments in the brain. So we see less brain, more consciousness again. That's That whole phenomenon, and there are a bunch of other cases too, it doesn't make sense under a traditional way of looking at the brain. It's not well explained by that, but it's it can be explained by looking at the brain as this filtering mechanism or like a blindfold. But the brain's actually getting in the way. It's it's sort of like Play-Doh. When you put Play-Doh through one of those like spaghetti machines and it comes out, it starts as Play-Doh, but it's being filtered in these little spaghetti pieces. It's just being filtered. That's like our body and our brain and our eyes and our perceptual systems. They show us that Play-Doh of consciousness in a very particular way. Great analogy again. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) So your podcast, Where's My Mind? Great title, by the way. Thank you. Brilliant. Where can we find that? Everywhere uh, we get our podcasts? Yes. yes. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major players. Perfect. Any closing thoughts or comments? I mean, I know this is all science-based. That's important. You also shared a bit about your own personal journey uh, on more of a spiritual level and with your meditation practice. Anything else you want to add to close this conversation? Well, to try to, to make it practical for people, as I've had to do for myself, and try to really harness all this. Because at, at first, I remember I was just, my mind was all over the place, didn't know how to make sense of it. But there does seem to be an evolutionary drive embedded in all of this. And I mean evolution, not in the biological sense, but in the sense of, of our consciousness. And the life review and, and the reincarnation studies, it might be pointing toward a, a system where we're here in the body to learn and evolve and get closer to to absorbing pure rays of the sun without as many clouds. And that process, some would say, is the spiritual awakening process or the spiritual journey. So I would imagine if your listeners are listening to your podcast and are are this far along and listening to this episode, they they might be thinking along these lines of, well, what can I be doing practically to to make it real in my life? And, And maybe many of your listeners are already doing that. The, the framework that I've found most useful comes from the yogic tradition, and I think this can be applied to any spiritual tradition. They categorize types of spiritual practice. 
and I've, I've generalized and combined things a little bit, but the four basic areas are jnana yoga, which is knowledge wisdom. There's bhakti yoga, which is devotion. So that could be chanting, praying, or just having an attitude of, of acknowledgement that we're part of this one consciousness, essentially. There is karma yoga, which is selfless service. And there's raja yoga, which generally could be considered energy practices. So it could be meditation, could be physical yoga, could be breathing, anything like that. So these four categories, wisdom, devotion, selfless service, and energy practices. Those are the four categories that, uh, in which people usually start with one of them. And then as you get it really deep into one, the others naturally start to fall. They're interconnected. And they lead people toward this state of self-realization, or at least on that journey. So in my own life, I like to think about what am I doing in these four areas all the time? And maybe when I started, it was just yana yoga because I was only learning. And it was the, the wisdom part that I was getting. And so for, for your audience, that could be listening to your podcast, Tanya, just like listening to this all the time and listening to other podcasts or reading books. To me, that's a, a form of spiritual practice because it's building our awareness and our knowledge base. Uh, but also thinking about the other ways of, of contributing, um, whether it's through selfless service or devotion or, or energy practices. That's so beautiful and very wise words. Thank you, Mark, so much for speaking with me today and sharing your journey. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. And likewise, and thank you for all that you're doing to bring this information to the world. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Mark Gober. To find out more about Mark's books and podcast, please visit markgober.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Be sure to subscribe to the show on most podcast platforms and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And make sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.